Section 17 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. The Counter-Reformation at its Height. Part 5. In the Empire, the religious division between the Protestants soon acquired a very marked political significance, more especially after Frederick III, Elector Palatine, had by the promulgation of the Heidelberg Catechism in 1562 taken his natural place at the head of the Calvinists, and had sent a large force under his son John Casimir to aid the French Huguenots in 1567 thus opening the long political drama which ended with the catastrophe of his great-grandson Frederick V. The Calvinist era in the Palatinate is marked by ruthless intolerance, and the execution of Silvanus at Heidelberg in 1573 is hardly less typical than is the burning of Servetus at Geneva twenty years before. The headquarters of the most rigid Lutheran orthodoxy were for a time at Jena, where Flaccius, to whom the systematization of Lutheranism is largely due, resided till 1561 in the service of the ill-used Ernestine line of the Saxon house. He found an unrelenting enemy in the head of the Albertine line, the Elector Augustus, who in the earlier part of his reign, 1553-86, attempted to maintain a moderate Lutheran attitude but his opinions afterwards stiffened. He became the promulgator of the Formula Concordiae of 1580, and harried his own crypto-Calvinists with so deadly a zeal that hopes were indulged at Rome of his ultimate conversion to the Catholic Church. In the case of the Brandenburg Albert, who, before converting East Prussia into a secular duchy, had introduced the Reformation there, the Lutheran bigotry displayed by his clergy and nobility against Osiander and the Osiandrists, culminating in the execution of his own confessor, Funke, in the midst of a psalm-singing mob, lent more color to the report that he had died a Roman Catholic, 1568. These currents of feeling perverted even the very attempts made to combine them into a common stream. Of the numerous formulae of belief composed, in more or less sincerity, with such a design during the latter half of the 16th century, the earliest was Melanchthon's, 1559, who died in the following year, without having accomplished his long and much misunderstood endeavor to reunite Christendom. Soon the hope passed away of a reconciliation, such as might have warranted the schemes of a general Protestant league, which prompted Queen Elizabeth's message to Heidelberg in 1577, and Segur's German mission when the French religious struggle was at its height in 1584. For the object of the notorious Formula Concordiae of 1580, notorious because of the means employed to enforce it, was speedily perceived to be the repression of all Philippist and trimming as well as of Calvinist doctrine. It was signed by the majority of the Protestant estates of the empire and by several thousands of theologians, but the Calvinists who refused it had the moral support of Elizabeth of England, of Henry of Navarre, and of Augustus of Saxony's own brother-in-law, Frederick II of Denmark, while a significant comment upon it was furnished by the breach opened about this time, 1585-87, to in the Netherlands, between the Calvinists 
and the less rigidly disposed adherents of the Reformation. Meanwhile, a school or tendency of Protestant thought and opinion began to become perceptible, of which the seeds had been blown hither and thither, northwards at first and westwards, by the blast of persecution, and on which the anathemas of the churches, both old and new, called down the repressive force of the secular arm. During the earlier times of the Reformation, these often isolated efforts had been officially and popularly lumped together as Anabaptism. In this later period, more than one noteworthy endeavor of the kind came from those Latin countries where the activity of the Counter-Reformation had nipped resistance to Rome in the bud, and left independent thinkers to confront her in isolated defiance. The cities which had formerly offered a refuge to Protestant free thought now rigidly formulated their specific creeds, or like Strasbourg had themselves to submit to the Catholic reaction. Thus it came to pass that these varieties of religious thought found a home on the eastern boundaries of European civilization, in Poland, where they were welcomed by members of an educated and to a large extent self-governed aristocracy. Yet even here, as will be seen, anti-Trinitarians were carefully excluded from the consensus of Sandomir, 1570. Thus was isolated the sect or community associated with the name of Faustus Socinus, 1539-1604, like his uncle, Lilius Socinus, a native of Siena, and a religious refugee. In Transylvania, a Unitarian church arose about the same time, not, however, organically connected with the Polish Sicinians. Of course the advocates of Rome laid their finger upon these divisions, and Bellarmine dissected Librum quem Lutherani vocant concordiae in the same year, 1586, in which he published the first volume of his chief controversial work. The manifest disunion among the Protestants was the main negative cause of the progress of the Counter-Reformation in this period, and went far to neutralize whatever advantages the Protestant cause might have derived from the accession of Maximilian II to the imperial throne in 1564. During the reign of his father, Ferdinand I, 1558-64, who, Spanish though he was, strove to rule in the interests of peace and unity, the advance of Protestantism throughout the empire admitted of no doubt. In Franconia, on the Rhine, and in Westphalia, the Reformation progressed, and even the Orthodox Duke Albert of Bavaria informed the Pope that a great part of his nobility would rather forego religious worship altogether than return to the Roman rites, 1570. The Archbishop of Salzburg told the Fathers at Trent, 1563, that no power on earth would force many of his subjects to forego their demand for the sacrament in both forms. Nor was it till the election of Wolf-Dietrich von Reitenau in 1590 that the reaction which led to an emigration was here carried out. In Austria, no movement has ever so powerfully seized upon both the German and the Slav elements of the population as that of the Reformation and Ferdinand's home rule was from the Peace of Augsburg onwards consistently tolerant. In 1564, Pope Pius IV was as good as his word, and confirmed the concession of the cup which the estates of Lower Austria had obtained in 1555, 
and those of Upper Austria in the following year. In Styria, Carinthia, and Carniola, the great majority of the nobility, together with nearly all the burghers of the towns, were Protestants. In Bohemia, where ultraquism was tending to merge into Lutheranism, while the more advanced doctrines of the Bohemian brethren continued to be widely cherished, Ferdinand I likewise soon found a policy of mere repression impossible, and in 1564 the papal concession of the cup to the laity was here also proclaimed. In the empire at large, where after a feudal religious discussion at Worms in 1557, the Diet of Augsburg in 1559 had declared its adhesion to the religious peace, Ferdinand's government allowed this agreement to be interpreted with considerable laxity, and the notorious ecclesiastical reservation by which it was accompanied to be treated with scant respect. Protestant administrators enjoyed the revenues of Catholic sees, and a system of imperial indulgences even made it occasionally possible for married prelates professing Protestant opinions to sit and vote as spiritual estates at the Diet. All this was hard to bear for Ferdinand I, for although he had long advocated a liberal religious policy at Trent, he was a true Catholic at heart. Thus he fell in with the plan of a gradual recovery of lost ground, and was persuaded to introduce the Jesuits into the Austrian duchies and Bohemia. But the Catholic reaction had not yet taken a firm footing in these countries. When here and in Hungary Maximilian II succeeded his father as ruler, the remainder of the hereditary dominions being assigned to the two younger brothers. Maximilian II, 1564-76, played only a negative part toward the religious movement of his age, but this part was by no means without importance. About the year of the religious peace of Augsburg, 1555, the rumors of an inclination on his part toward Protestantism began to take definite shape. The outward conduct of the young king, who was at this time much under the influence of John Sebastian Fausa, a married ecclesiastic, lent color to the report, and he was denounced to his father by the Jesuit Canisius. Although notwithstanding his grievances against Spain, he is not known to have interfered with the strictly Catholic life of his Spanish wife, and although he did not withdraw from the observance of the ordinary usages of the Church, he kept away from specifically Catholic solemnities and insisted on receiving the sacrament in both kinds, while he engaged in the study of Protestant works and in corresponding with Protestants. Every effort was made by Ferdinand I to turn his son back from the path on which he had obviously entered, though at the same time the emperor remained deaf to the admonition of Pope Paul IV, which he had every reason for resenting as well as mistrusting, that he should disinherit his eldest son. Maximilian found himself in a position in which only a heroic type of character would have borne itself with steadfastness. There is no proof that he ever changed his opinions, and some noteworthy evidence to the contrary but he henceforth outwardly conformed to the Church of Rome, heard Orthodox preachers, and even permitted three nunchos in succession, Hosius, Delphius, and Commendone, to prove their zeal by attempts to complete his conversion. Inasmuch as, notwithstanding his declarations, both public and private, 
the Protestant electors continued to look forward to his adoption of the Confession of Augsburg after he should have ascended the imperial throne, his election as Roman king in 1562 must be looked upon as the result of an unworthy double game. For Maximilian had now no intention of abandoning either the creed of Rome or the renewed intimate cooperation of the Austrian with the Spanish branch of the House of Habsburg. Dynastic ambition prevailed over all other motives, and just before his father's death, Maximilian was in sufficiently good odor of orthodoxy for his claim to the imperial succession to be recognized by the Pope in full consistory. Thus it came to pass that no such changes as had been at one time anticipated resulted from the accession of Maximilian II to the imperial throne. While the imperial authority grew weaker and weaker, unstrengthened by any effective foreign policy, which might have shared the glory of Lepanto, or have achieved an earlier Lepanto by land, and while the perverse doctrinal disputes among the Protestants continued, the Catholic propaganda steadily went its way. Maximilian's mind, impatient of nice theological distinctions and offended by the quarrels of bigotry, seems gradually to have settled itself very near the center of the balance, though it would be grossly unjust to charge him with religious indifference. Tolerance in the true sense of the word was the guiding principle of his conduct. He stood firm against the pressure put upon him by Pope Pius V to become a persecutor of heretics. On the other hand, he likewise refused the demand of his Austrian estates for the expulsion of the Jesuits. His business, he told them, was to expel not the Jesuits, but the Turks. While, however, at the beginning of his reign he had remained in touch with the Protestant interest, he latterly, without abandoning his principle of tolerance, turned in the opposite direction. Spanish marriage schemes and perhaps speculations on the Polish crown added their influence, and fears were even entertained that the disappointment caused among the Protestant estates by the emperor's bearing might lead to the outbreak of a religious conflict. These fears, however, proved premature. In his hereditary dominions, Maximilian, while exacting securities of fair treatment for the Catholics, permitted the estates of the laity to order the services of the church in accordance with the Confession of Augsburg. But even in Lower Austria, he refrained from establishing a Protestant consistory under his own headship and instructed the Lutheran Cutrius, who drew up the service book both here and in Styria, to include in it as many passages as might be from the Roman ritual. In Austria, above the ends, the estates maintained a more complete religious independence. In Carniola, the tide continued in favor of Protestantism for some years beyond the close of Maximilian's reign. In Bohemia, by declaring the Hussite compactates out of force, he put an end to the established dualism of Catholics and Ultraquists, and hastened the amalgamation of the latter with the Lutherans, while the Bohemian brethren spread more than ever. In Hungary, too, in so far as Maximilian's authority was acknowledged there, Protestantism continued its course unchecked, and deemed itself distinctly countenanced by the king. Among the German temporal princes since the death in 1568 of Duke Henry of Brunswick-Wolfenbüttel, Luther's Böser Heinz, 
none adhered to Catholicism but Dukes Albert V, 1557-79, and William V, 1579-97 of Bavaria, and more fitfully, Duke William of Jülich Cleve Berg, 1539-92. The former, though by no means fanatically disposed, he had obtained the concession of the cup for his nobility, opened the door to the Catholic reaction in his dominions, sanctioned the establishment of a very active index commission at Munich under Jesuits Canisius and Pelton in 1561, and encouraged the opening of a Jesuit college at Munich in 1559, which soon emptied the higher Protestant schools, and of another at Landshut in 1578. In the University of Ingolstadt, the Jesuits were not established on a solid footing till 1576, but under the bigoted William V, the entire faculty of arts in this university were committed to them in perpetuum. The Duke of Cleves, albeit proverbially Papa in Suis Terres, could not withhold from the greater part of his subjects the desired right of attending Protestant worship. In Württemberg, the ascendancy of the Lutheran clergy and the representatives of the towns in the dominant committees of the estates assured the stability of the Reformation. But in the neighboring Margravate of Baden, Catholicism was restored, 1570-71, under Margrave Philip, whose father, Philibert, had fallen on the Huguenot side in the Battle of Montcontour, 1569. End of Section 17